Okay. trying to graduate to being a survivor of crime with an emphasis on the aftermath of crime and how it impacts your life. If you appreciate diversity of topic and want to come along for the ride, if you are looking for cutting-edge programs, information, resources, inspiring people that assist you in finding your voice, you have come to the right place. This is Donna R. Gore, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast. So good morning, everyone across the country. Um, We're here with you each and every Saturday, and we welcome you um, to our array of topics. And today um, we we have um, a couple of guests that we have had on a couple of times before, just because they're they're so well versed and represent advocacy for crime victims, and uh, so we have Jennifer Bishop Jenkins and Bill Jenkins, the power couple as we have called them in the past, and they are going to uh, relay a variety of information regarding Marcy's Law because it pertains to all crime victims, and uh, perhaps give us a report card and update. But before I um, introduce them formally. I want to say good morning to Delilah and Myrtle Beach. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just want to take a minute and plug our Inside Network. We have been around for a long, long time. We have almost 700 episodes with various different shows that have something for everyone to listen to, and most of them most of them are crime-related, whether we're highlighting cases or speaking about victims' rights like we're doing today or uh, just, you know, speaking about the aftermath with victims and how, how they're getting through and offering resources and, and advice on how to help others out there. But if you are listening through iTunes or, or no matter where you're listening from, if you would go and give us some ratings give us some reviews it would help us get a larger audience for the shows that we're doing and also increase the listenership so that we get the message to more and more people here here i i I second that i third that because this the information we provide i believe is is high quality and very vital and just the, the caliber of guests that we have for example who we have on today is just, uh, you know, um, wonderful information to have. So I hope people will, will heed your message, Delilah. And, um, you know, we've, we've, known, we've, we've known Jennifer uh, and Bill for a long time. Um, I've, I've known them in a variety of uh, venues, attending conferences with them and having them on the radio and just know the, the plethora of things that they bring to the table. And um, 
So initially, I just wanted to say we tried to plan this show, and and um, Mark Class was going to be part of it, and unfortunately, we didn't hear from him until the very last minute, some miscommunications, and he was unable to be with us today. Perhaps he will be on a show um, in the near future if we can coordinate our our schedule. So. Bill graciously agreed to step in, and I, I know that, you know, he will provide, you know, uh, that, that second voice that, that Mark was going to be on this topic. So hopefully we have Jennifer on the line, too. So yes, good indeed. morning. Good yep. morning. It's so nice to have you. Thank you good so morning. much for stepping up to the plate and, and doing this today, Jennifer. Um you know, initially when we, we did this thing on Facebook and you were wanting to um, talk talk about the enforceable rights of Marcy's Law. And just for the sake of our audience, you know, we come, we come as, as uh, crime victim advocates and what we're doing typically benefits those that come after us. It doesn't necessarily affect what has come for our cases and our family. Can you just give us... Um, a reason initially for everybody to be listening to this, even if they have an active case. Why are crime victims' rights important? How how will it impact, you know, the, the people that are going through something now or maybe whose cases have been, quote, unquote, resolved? Give everybody a reason to say Marcy's Law is important to them. Wow. Well, that is, I mean, that's really the one truth for all of us, no matter what the crime is that has been committed against you, no matter what the status of your case, whether it's yet to come or whether it's been done for years, um, every single crime victim, no matter what their issue, no matter what their timeline, they are all going to be intersecting at some level with the criminal justice system whether there is even a capture of the offender or not. You're still going to be talking to law enforcement. You're still going to be doing an investigation. You're still going to be needing information. You're still going to need to be communicating with officials working on your case. Even if it's gone past for years, victims are intersecting with the criminal justice system. And what Marcy's Law does is it's a movement um, that's actually very old. It predates the name Marcy's Law for by decades, but that's what its current um, current iteration is and has been for the last decade. Um, the Marcy's Law movement is a movement to make sure that the constitutional protections that have real enforcement teeth to them that are afforded to every offender in the com- country also have um, parallel comparable rights for victims, and they call it equal rights for crime victims. It's not exactly equal because there are different kinds of rights. The rights of the accused are rights of uh, rules of evidence and presumption of innocence and you know, trial by jury and not cruel and unusual punishment and things like that. For the victims, it's uh, knowing about what's going on in your case, being told, being informed, being able to um, attend uh, proceedings, um, you know, just uh, all of the different ways that, you know, you would be intersecting with your own case. And um, it's really, um, I've heard from victims, and of course nothing, you know, nothing matches the, the horror of the initial crime for a victim, but I have heard from victims that I've worked with over the years 
that you know when you expect an offender to to offend against you when you get involved with the criminal justice system you don't expect that to also victimize you you hope that when you're dealing with the legal structures of our country that that they're going to treat you well as a victim, that they're going to know that you're a victim, that they're going to treat you with respect and dignity, that they're going to keep you informed, they're going to let you be heard from, they're going to make sure that you're able to attend the things that you need to attend, that you have the support, that you can ask for restitution. Um, you, you, you hope and expect that the system of our government and our criminal justice system will treat the victim better. And what we have heard so many times is, that when you don't get told things and when you, don't, when you get left out and when you get um, you know, kind of harassed or, or even treated disrespectfully um, or um, not allowed to speak or not allowed to come um, or you know, not told about things until the last minute or even after it's over, these things are really hurtful to victims. You expect the offender to offend, but you don't expect the system to also victimize you. So, you know, victims' rights violations are painful. They're painful to families, and they frustrate the process for us that comes after the crime. After the crime, we we have work to do on trying to set our lives back to normal, and one of those tasks is to work effectively and and, uh, well with the criminal justice system, and that's what victims' rights does. It guarantees that crime victims have the constitutional level, enforceable level protections that offenders also have so that when we intersect with the criminal justice system, it's not a re-victimization. Yeah. Um, and just so that I, we get some of these numbers right, in, in, my, in my research, um, 35 states have some form of state constitutional rights. Is it 15 states that have none? And there's about... Uh, uh, eight or ten, Kentucky, Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Idaho, Oklahoma, Maine, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Iowa that are in the process of getting the uh, constitutional amendment. Is that correct? Okay. So that, you know, it, it depends on what your definition of, um, you know, who ha- I mean, all 50 states and U.S. territories and the federal criminal justice system all have victims' rights at the statutory level. They're in the laws. Um, mm-hmm. But you're right, it's only about, um, you know, three-fifths of the states that have them in constitutions, and many of those are not enforceable. So what Mar- Marcy's Law has been doing is to work on passage of in- la- language that's enforceable. For example, here in Illinois, where I ran the Marcy's Law campaign, the Illinois had a, even, even had a constitutional amendment for crime victims' rights. Um, right. But it was a weak one, and it had no enforcement. And, and here's a key for people that their crime was years ago. You know that legally cases can somehow, sometimes have appeals and new proceedings years after the original trial. And, and, you know, something can happen, the offender can file a motion or he can come up for parole or the laws could change about the sentencing or something, and you would be back in court again maybe even decades later. Um, most crime victims' rights that are current in, across the country only apply to the original trial, and many of them are just at the statutory level. Therefore, they're not really very strong and can be, and, and often are, routinely ignored um, without a consequence to the structural systems that ignore the victims' rights. 
So we are trying to, you know, beef those up and give them actual enforcement. And so what we did, for example, here in Illinois uh, and in California, where they first passed Marcy's Law in 2008, and Illinois in 2014 was the second state, um, and we already had pretty good rights in Arizona and Oregon. So we had, you know, at that point just four states, and then, you know, we've since passed in North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, uh, Ohio, um, you know, we're, we're, um, we're, we're on a roll now. And we're on the ballot, and this is what's most exciting. Um, we're on the ballot in November, which is just a few months away, in mm-hmm. the following states. So listen up if you listen in those states. If you are living in North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Nevada, or Oklahoma, Marcy's Law is on the ballot for your citizens in your state to approve into its state constitution come this November. And that's really, really uh, exciting and important um, step forward. We have state teams working in Idaho, Iowa, Maine, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And they are, um, you know, about the business of whatever. Every state has a different process about how you approve a constitutional amendment. So they're working on that. And if you are in any of those states, or even in a state that has no team yet, um, you can go to marcyslaw.us, M-A-R-S-Y-S. Marcy is spelled with an S. So Marcy's Law, all one word, M-A-R-S-Y-S-L-A-W, dot U-S, marcyslaw.us. And you can uh, click on the State Efforts tab, and you can see a map of the U.S., and you can actually, um, you know, tap tap right into a page about your state. You can, there's a, um, on the home page, there's a, if you're a victim or if you're an attorney or if you're a policymaker, you want to learn more. There's videos, there's press packets that tell you all about it, actual language, explains what the, you know, the rights, how they work legally, um, so there's all sorts of great information at that website, and that's where people should go to get more information. Jennifer, in can you, for the, benefit of, for, the, oh, for the benefit of, of some people who maybe have not gone through the justice system or been a victim of crime, can you just briefly tell what type of rights that Marcy's Law is going to cover? And Because I think general public probably believes that if if something happens to you then your local jurisdiction is going to take care of you correct right that's that's what everybody assumes <laughs> yep <laughs> and it's wrong <laughs> and and often they do you know it's just kind of a hit or miss isn't it and and of course one right. of the things that's really hard is for people to know that you know if you're in this county you might be treated well but if you're in that town or city you might not be or if you are, um, uh, you know, a person who has more money, maybe you're going to get better attention than a person who has less money. Maybe it's about, um, you know, how busy that particular um, court system is. There are all sorts of things that can really, um, you know, mess it up. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, usually um, I would say that in my experience, just this rough anecdotally, about half of the victims I talked to had an okay experience, but about half of the victims I talked to don't. So um, what these rights are in general, and, and they can vary in terms of each state's criminal justice system can have different features, but um, in general it's about staying informed about your case, being able to be told all the time what's going on, 
be treated with dignity and respect and to be treated politely. You'd be amazed. Like I live in the Chicagoland area. There's a lot of um, inter-gang crime. And so let's say one gang member shoots another kid who's an innocent neighborhood kid, and the families all go down to the court, and the mom of the victim is in the same room as the family of the offender. And what we have seen and heard from all too often is that they're all treated like criminals. Every one of them, they're, tr- they're, they're treated like cattle. And they're, they're kind of yelled at and get over there and be quiet and don't you dare say anything and don't show any emotion and don't, you know, don't bother right. us. You know? It's awful. It can be awful. So, um, but in terms of what the, the actual rights are, um, uh, they vary from state to state, but the right to know what's going on, the right to be treated with dignity and respect, uh, and to, be, to actually consult with a prosecutor in your case if there is a prosecutor assigned. Now, sometimes if there's a crime committed and the victim, uh, there's no offender arrest yet, there's no right to talk to a prosecutor because there's no prosecution because there's no arrest of an offender yet. Um, but if there is an offender and there is a prosecutorial team working, yes, you have a right to consult with them. There's the right to timely notice of court proceedings. Every time that there is a proceeding where the uh, offender could be released, for example, a bail hearing, a, um, an initial arraignment, all the way down to the actual trial or any pre-trial uh, important hearings or sentencing hearings after the trial, all of those things you need to have timely notice of, enough, enough time to plan to get off work. I've had people who got calls on a Thursday afternoon at 4.30 that they have an 8 a.m. court call the next day in their daughter's murder case, and they <sighs> couldn't get off work, couldn't get a babysitter, whatever. I mean, so timely notice uh, is important, and also, um, you know, that way victims under Marcy's Law can actually say, well, you know, Two, two days warning is not enough for me. I need more time. Or, or um, you can't keep putting this off. You can't keep delaying things because, you know, I'm getting um, this. This is really wor- working a hard process on me to have to wait so long for proceedings. You can even ask for things to be sped up a little bit too. So, um, so there's the proceeding timing, and then of course the right to be heard at sentencing, to be able to make a victim impact statement. That's what happened in my case. Um, we waited two years, went through the trial. It was an agonizing, hellacious process after my sister and her husband and their baby were murdered. We were really looking forward to that time. We could make our victim impact statement at the sentencing hearing. And the day before, we got this call from the court that there's a mandatory life sentence. They're not going to bother to take time. They're really busy on the docket. Don't come. They won't be doing victim impact statements. I mean, we really had written them, wanted to do that, needed to be there, I needed to have that heard and read into the court record, and we were denied that. And that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in that, because I really understand what that feels like. Um, Also, the newest rights under Marcy's Law is the right to know about things after the trial. Like if you have an appeal that comes down the road a year or two later, you need to be called and told about that. So uh, and to be heard in that process as well. That's new with Marcy's Law. The victims would have rights at the appellate level, not just at the initial trial level. Uh, and then, of course, there's a really big one, which is restitution, the right to ask the court for, for restitution for the crime. And that could be, um, you know, financial damages, uh, you know, medical bills that you've suffered or time off of work, things like that. Great. We just um, had a, a, a recent law passed in Connecticut 
essentially just to remind the judge that they need to ask about restitution. Because, and I have just written a, a new blog with regard to that because actually it's it's not workable in Connecticut. It's not real. And I've just encountered the situation going through a, another parole hearing, and I'm very proud to say I was telling Bill that we are going to establish a working group in the uh, state legislature with our my legislator is the speaker of the house and uh because the various victim services entities do not work together there's only one place for people to go to a parole hearing that's very inconvenient inaccessible to people with disabilities etc cetera, etc cetera. don't know about freedom of information requests so uh, you know we all have to be become our own advocate unfortunately to fill in the Length. And Jennifer, when you talked about victim impact, I just want to say through working with people and providing my victim impact writing service, I'm encountering um, all kinds of situations where they don't even know about what their basic rights are. And at least through this venue, I've been able to kind of guide some of these people to say, do you know you have rights and this is this, this is what you should be pursuing or um, maybe this is how you get to talk to your chief of police. I just wrote a, a blog on that because people don't know how to uh, to approach them appropriately and get things done. So, you know, there's so many layers of this. And I'm just wondering, Bill, to get you in here, you know, you sure. your your um your crime happened with your son at at um can you talk to um how Marcy's law um, rights impacted your situation with the homicide in your family. Like, were 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 the rights afforded, you know, theoretically or practically? With, with well, your situation? I, I'm I'm sort of on the other side of the spectrum because uh, in our trial um, we were generally um, uh, outside of a little, you know, a couple miscommunications, which you can understand. Um, but uh, for the most part, our victims' rights were enforced uh, and followed by the court. I, I think it's it's important for everybody to understand that when it comes to victims' rights, these are rights that enable logistic and practical things to happen in the courtroom, that you are um, uh, protected from abuse, that you're protected from uh, intimidation, that that you will have the opportunity to know about things. They don't guarantee that the trial is going to go your way. <laughs> right. um, and, and they don't guarantee that the judge is always going to rule in your favor, even when you see that, you know, obviously that's the right decision. Um, so, you know, it, it's a it's a small step towards, uh, towards justice. And, uh, um, it's, and when we were in, um, uh, in, uh, in the courtroom, um, we were generally met with dignity by the judge. The, uh, I, I was very impressed actually by the defense attorney's, um, respect for us in the courtroom. Um, in fact, uh, uh, sometime after the trial, um, I was actually driving past his office, and I realized, oh my gosh, that's that's the name of the defense attorney. I actually went in and um, just told him how much I appreciated his respect for us and him not abusing 
the power that he could have uh, taken advantage of in that situation, and that uh, I, uh, I I was grateful for the way that he handled his part of the case, and he really appreciated that uh, because I, I'm sure he rarely hears that. But <clears throat> it was one of those things where I just thought that you know it, it it's a good thing to let defense attorneys know that they are handling um, their cases in ways that respect victims. In fact, Jennifer and I have on occasion gone and spoken to law schools um, and uh, spoken to even defense attorney organizations to let them know what the laws are, what the, what the victims' rights are, uh, and to encourage them to follow uh, the victim's rights, because you know one thing that uh, it, it actually helps them in um, is they don't look like jerks when they're standing up in the courtroom and they do something that kind of comes off as looking abusive and and uh, and stupid. Uh, and as a result, being informed on their end also helps them, and it helps the criminal justice system be uh, as as impartial as it needs to be. Uh, without uh, either biasing uh, people in one direction or the other. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things that I did uh, when I wrote my book, What to Do When the Police Leave, uh, I put the victims' rights, uh, I listed the victims' rights uh, in um, in my book so that people would know what it is that they have available. Uh, right. And they would know it if they saw one of these uh, these rights being abrogated or violated in some or some way, um, and we've heard stories from everybody from the judge down through the defense attorney, which you would you know maybe expect that they'd try to you know push the envelope, but we've even found prosecutors have have not been willing to um, um, accept a little bit of inconvenience when it comes to running their office and running the court. Uh, running their part of the courtroom um, uh, and acknowledge victims' rights and give the victims a, just a little bit more time and a little bit more attention and a little bit more respect. Uh, it's um, you know the professionalism of the of the criminal justice system where you have professional judges and you have professional defense attorneys and you have professional prosecutors. And sometimes in the case of, of defendants, it even seems like some of those have more experience in the courtroom than the victims do. Uh, the, uh, it's so important to not let things that are, are the right thing to do get lost in the, um, uh, in the need f- or the perceived need for expediency or efficiency or just trying to get through a very, very busy day. Right. Well, we shouldn't have to write a law that says essentially for the judge to remind them to ask the the victims about would you like restitution. It should be routinely applied. But, you know, a lot of times we have these feel-good laws when if states like ours who are essentially bankrupt cannot afford to do things so they do sort of a little procedural law to make certain people feel good. But, you know, I, I want laws with, with teeth in them, and I think that's what, you know, Mar- Marcy's, Marcy's law is going to accomplish. But, Jennifer, what, um, when, you, when you talk about them not being enforceable, how do we, for those people that have, that, that have the rights on the books, how do we go about making them enforceable? 
Well, enforcement, it's very much uh, about something called standing, which is a legal concept. Um, Do you actually have an official place or or role in the case that is recognized by law that allows you to file a motion? So, for example, um, because that's how you enforce something, you you file a motion. So, for example, here in Illinois, they had passed a a constitutional amendment for victims' rights in 1992, kind of part of this. uh, Let let me back up a little bit and give you a teeny bit of history. There's a wonderful article for, for the lawyer scholarly types called The Third Wave, by Professor Doug Belouf, B-E-L-O-O-F. Professor Doug Belouf is uh, founded the National Crime Victims uh, Law Institute up at Lewis and Clark University in the in the um, Pacific Northwest area, and um, uh, the third wave is an article he authored that explains the historical progress that victims' rights have made. We pro- progressed from having first statutory rights only. This all kind of happened after World War II. Um, you know, victims' rights were really sort of assumed to be a part of our um, jurisprudence when our country was founded. A lot of people look in the U.S. Constitution and say, how come there's no mention of victims' rights now by, of crime victims? Well, because when it was written in 1789, which was a long, long time ago, crime victims <laughs> yeah. were the prosecutors. Crime victims were assumed to be heard from, participating in, knowing about you know, proceedings. If if somebody was a crime victim in 1789, they were um, the one that took the. You know, like if you stole my cow, I'm. You know, I'm going to go down to the town saloon when the judge rides through on his circuit on his horse, and I'm going to say, you know, Donna stole my cow. So I, the victim, <laughs> I'm also the prosecutor. So I'm actually there in the case, being heard from. Um, and that is the way that the system used to work. There were very few professional prosecutors um, back in uh, the time that our country was founded. The victims usually were the law enforcement and did their own uh, bringing of cases. So there was never a question of victims' participation. But as our country grew over a couple hundred years and we professionalized and, and bureaucratized the criminal justice system, the victim just kept getting pushed further and further away. And victims, by the time you reach the middle part of the 20th century, victims are, some people even argue that victims were only a piece of evidence, that they weren't even uh, a recognized um, having standing in their own cases. It was all about the people versus the offender, and it was not a case that was officially even recognizing the legal status of the victim. So enforceability is about the legal status of the victim. And after World War II, we started seeing, because of the massive, horrific human rights violations that came with World War II, a real recognition that we needed to protect uh, the rights of people all over the place. And you saw the birth of the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. And the victims' rights movement really came along with all of that. And by the time that you reached the 1970s and the 1980s, Professor Belief's article, uh, The Third Wave, talks about first there's a whole bunch of state statutes that are passed. Then you see a lot of state constitutional amendments that are passed into the 80s and, and 90s. Illinois was one of those. And the constitutional amendment that they passed was Nice. It named all these pretty victims' rights, but it did not. It, it literally said in Section A, here's these ten rights you have. But in Section D, in the small fine print, it said, but you can't enforce them. It didn't say it exactly like that. It just said that you couldn't file. Well, a then what good is it? It's a piece of paper. 
Exactly. It's voluntary. Okay, so if you feel like complying with the victim's rights, you could do it. But if uh, all across our state and other states where there was no enforcement, and, and most states have, have to this day no enforcement, um, you, you really um, couldn't do anything about it if there was a violation, if the victim wasn't notified or was uh, not given timely notice or wasn't allowed to speak or whatever. No recourse. No recourse. And so now under Marcy's law, what they will have is standing before the court to file a motion so that you can um, uh, say to the judge, you can actually speak to the judge and the judge can talk to you back. Now, the comparable example of this is the news media. The news media, because of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution that gives the freedom of the press such a pivotal role in, in our democracy, the press has a right to file a motion. Like if a judge says, I'm sorry, but no cameras in the courtroom, no reporters in the courtroom, gag order on this case, the, the news media can file a motion and say, but wait, Your Honor, we have a First Amendment you know, freedom of the press here to cover this case, and the judge will balance the rights. That's what judges do. They balance competing rights, the rights of the accused to a presumption of innocence versus the right of the press to cover the trial, and the judge will rule on the facts of that individual case. And that's what you should be able to do. But right now, in most places, victims, unless they have Marcy's Law, victims can't file a motion to say, but, Your Honor, I wanted to make that victim impact statement. I want that. And in case one case in Oregon, it's one of the very few cases where they've ever actually had to do a proceeding over again. Once they passed, Marcy, they, they passed rights like Marcy's Law in Oregon, um, uh, a, a father whose daughter was murdered, the, they skipped his victim impact statement. They held the sentencing hearing without notifying him. He couldn't come and make his victim impact statement. So he filed a motion with the court, and the court s- said, okay, we're invalidating that sentencing hearing, and we're going to do it over again, this time with the father making his victim impact statement. And all it took was that one time, and now no court in Oregon ever makes that mistake again. Um, so enforcement is um, actually helps the system to work better. It and actually, that's what needs to happen in every state then. I mean, yeah. there's plenty of examples of this happening. But how long does it take in terms of time and practically speaking if someone were to be able to do that and file a motion for the judge to rule? How, how long does that process take? Well, in Illinois and, and in most other Marcy's Law states where it's already passed, it, uh, there is a requirement that the judge has to rule on the victim's motion within 48 hours. Okay. But so they have to, other states, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it can be a very prompt, a very prompt repair. Yeah. Wow. Well, well, that's encouraging if you if you live in those states where this this could happen in a timely fashion. Um, Another thing that I, when I was reading, and I'm sure you have a, 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 a response to this, you know, the ACLU does not does not like, um, does not agree wholeheartedly with Marcy's law, and they're saying the problem is that the state legislatures mandate to approve the state constitutional amendment. Um, they have to do that uh, before it goes to the voters, and that the rights against the state. Um, are are against the the accused versus you know the the rights for the victims uh, are against the individual. So what would you say in uh, to counterbalance the ACLU's problem with Marcy's law? Can you explain it better than I just did? Because they're they're saying, oh no, this this shouldn't be happening. 
Right. So I have to tell you, this is one of the most frustrating parts of this very amazing and inspirational work that I'm privileged to do um, with Bill and with people like you, Donna, and and, and, uh, all across the country with people who support the Marcy's Law and Victims' Rights Movement. This is one of the hardest parts. I don't get why the American Civil Liberties Union, which is <laughs> a great a great history of, of defending of the rights of people in our society, why this is the agency that is leading the opposition to victims' rights right now. And, and here's what I know, and I know this from the inside out, because I worked with them on a number of other issues. I've been a longtime supporter of their wonderful, um, wonderful history as an organization. And I have worked closely with them on many issues, and I – uh, no, I have friends in there, and I just don't understand. They're completely wrongheaded about this, and here's what they think. They actually believe that the rights of the accused and the rights of the victims are in direct competition and contradiction to each other, that like somehow if you would give the victim more rights that you would lose rights for the offender, that it's like a zero-sum game, that if somebody gains, then the other person's going to lose, and they see it like they do all court proceedings where you have a prosecution and a defense and it's one side versus the other and one side's going to win and one side's going to lose. And that's the way they see it. They see victims' rights as indirect competition to the rights of the accused and, of course, as you know, being committed to defend the Bill of Rights. They um, you know, uh, are about the rights of the accused. There's like four or five of them in the Bill of Rights that are really strong, the uh, fourth, fifth, uh, sixth, you know, Seventh and Eighth Amendments directly dealing with the rights of the accused, and that's a significant part of our Bill of Rights, and they take their charge very seriously and that those are important. But I've already told you historically why victims' rights were left out of that initial Bill of Rights, because victims were part of their cases. They were infrastructurally absolutely included in their cases back in the time that that was written. What was at issue back in the day, in you know, King George would arrest people without you know charge and hold people without due process and punish people horrifically for minor offenses of freedom of speech and so on. They needed back in 1789. They needed the rights of the accused to be protected. That's what we built into the founding of our country. And the ACLU has done a magnificent job over the years of defending that. But now they see victims' rights as somehow taking away from that, and they're just wrong. They're wrong about this. A crime victim. And it needs to be totally equivalent, like number for number? Like no, totally it does not equal. need to be. Victims' rights are different. Victims' rights are a different kind of right. I can have a fully realized right as a crime victim to know about my case, to be present, to be heard from, to, be, to ask for restitution, to speak to the prosecutor, to be kept safe, all of those rights can be completely protected for me, and also the accused can also have presumption of innocence and rules of evidence and trial by jury and um, you know a right to a speedy trial and freedom from cruel and unusual punishment and all and no self-incrimination and all of those rights that are afforded to the to the offender, all or to the accused, all of those rights can be fully realized also. And this is where the ACLU is wrong. 
Yes, they can mutually coexist. They are not in contradiction to each other. They're not in competition. They're parallel rights. They're, they should both be constitutionally equal in level, equal in importance and value, fully realized on both sides. In no way does Marcy's Law take away one iota from the strong, appropriately strong presumptions of, of innocence and all the rights afforded the accused in our country. None of those are, are changed by Marcy's Law, and none of those are threatened by Marcy's Law. So the ACLU's fear that a stronger victim's right would somehow hurt um, the rights of the accused, they're just wrong about it. And I know that when the voices of the you know, overwhelming, overwhelming, overwhelming majority of Americans who all support this, it's the most truly nonpartisan issue of our time, where everybody in America was like, oh, yeah, well, of course a victim should have rights. I mean, there's literally almost nobody that opposes it. Everybody supports it. Um, but you have a few people who are in, um, you know, uh, the work of the, pro- of the defense attorney community that are very, very threatened by it because they somehow think that a present and informed and, and supported victim is going to somehow reduce the chances for justice for their for the accused, and it's just simply not true, and they're wrong, and they need to stop being afraid of something that they should not be afraid of. Mm. Well, so this is, so this is coming from you know a select few or whatever, and and um, so the the criminals have more than uh, twenty rights in the U.S. Constitution. Is that right, more or less? So why can't we, we write something equivalent to say, here are the 20 rights that victims should have? I, mean, <laughs> I don't think the number is what matters. I, I think it's the ability of the person that is affected by a case, both the victim and the accused, mm-hmm. to be a participant, a fully protected, safe, the process should be safe and should allow a full and fair participation of all affected by the crime. You don't um, – I mean, it would be horrific if we didn't give the accused all of the protections that we give them. Every one of the protections that the accused have is completely appropriate. I think the one Mm -hmm. where you might have some competition uh, and some disagreement – actually, two – Two rights where I do see occasionally one side will want one thing and one side will want the opposite. Like one time you, you'll, I've heard of, you know, um, uh, constantly the defense side will want to keep the victim. Let's say there's a murder and the mom, the crying mother, he doesn't want the crying mother in the courtroom. He doesn't want her in her because he didn't want the jury to see the crying mother. Or the rape mm-hmm. victim. He doesn't want the rape victim in the courtroom because he don't, doesn't want the jury to see her sympathetically. And so sometimes you'll have a conflict between the victim wanting to be present and the accused wanting them not to be present. And both sides will file motions, and the judge will look at the individual facts of the case and do like they do in every other courtroom every single day, millions of times uh, a year across the United States. They balance the rights. They say, well, weighing this and weighing these factors, the specifics of this case, I'm going to rule this time in favor of uh, the accused and will keep the victim out. Or in this case, I'm going to rule on, on, on the behalf of the victim and keep keep uh, her allowed to be present or whatever. So in, in those cases, you just turn it over to the judge. Let the judge look at the facts of the case. But the point is if the victim can't file that motion to say, wait a minute, I wanted to be in the courtroom. If they didn't get that opportunity to ask, then the judge doesn't have an opportunity to balance those rights. 
and to decide in that particular case if that's the right thing to do. So you have, um, uh, and you also hear, um, you know, the accused uh, uh, often not wanting to pay restitution or um, the accused, um, you know, doesn't want the victim to make a statement at sentencing. But, you know, all of these things should be the fully protected right of of the victim. And so if there is a conflict over any of the rights, it's the same thing with the, with the victim might have, uh, or, or the, the state's attorneys, the prosecutors might object to one of the rights of the offender, um, and they will file a motion before the judge, and the judge will decide it. So well, that's how other, the system works. interject. There's one other um, um, defendant's right that has been horrifically abused over the years, and that is the right to a speedy trial. If the if the defendant mm-hmm. waives that right, they can continue the case and continue it until witnesses die, um, and that's been done. We we know and it's that a this strategy is they use, right? It's just one of those tactics, and so there is a right uh, of victims to have, and I love the way they say it, a right to a trial free from unreasonable delay. And one of the things that never happened before that right was was uh, um, in, put into law, one of the things that would always happen is that the judge and the, and the prosecutor and the defense attorney would figure out what date was good for them. And, of course, they didn't have to worry about the defendant because the defendant was in jail and was always available. But the, uh, but the defense would say, well, I can't make it, you know, next week I'm golfing or we need another three weeks or six weeks or a year to put this trial together. Prosecutor says, well, I have a, you know, I have a thing that I can't be here for this date and this date. And they'd settle on a date. Nobody would ever look at the victim's family and say, and Mrs. Jones, when would it be good for you to have this trial? It was never a consideration. And to have a trial that's free from unreasonable delay is is, is critical for, for so many families, especially ones that are out of state. People don't realize the psychological importance of victims' rights, and they don't realize how important it is for a family member to be there in the, in the courtroom, especially in the case of a homicide, because their loved one can't be. And, you know, we hear people say, well, why – you know, why would you want to go to the courtroom in the first place? Or, um, you know, if you can't go, you can't go. You have they to don't understand the important. psychological importance and the, the psychological well-being that victims' rights affords the family and the victim uh, in many cases when these rights are enforced. And the thing about the ACLU, if I might add, um, you know, the ACLU can support both sides, and I don't even want to say sides. They can support both efforts here. They can support the efforts of strong defendants' rights. They can support the efforts of strong victims' rights and not have any conflict whatsoever, and they come out smelling like a rose. Well, then that's what they need to be doing. Uh, uh, one really? would think. Yeah. Is um, does it come down to you know when I was reading, uh, in terms of going you know being having it on the ballot in November in terms of the petition they were saying there's like about eighteen hundred and fifty names and the goal is two thousand, is that the most powerful tool that we need to reinforce with listeners that they need to sign petitions or for if it's come up to the ballot in in those states you mentioned, Jennifer, or is it about um, um, 
articulating it on social media, going to rallies, having legislative meetings. What is the most powerful tool for you to get this going in your in your own state if you want to participate? Oh, thank you so much for asking that question, Donna. God love you for that. Um, well, first of all, um, everybody should go to marcyslaw.us, M-A-R-S-Y-S, marcyslaw.us, and look on, click on the state efforts and find out what's going on in their state. I can tell you, I can go over the list one more time. These are the states where you are fortunate because it's coming up. It's already on the ballot. It's going to be voted on by the people in your state. North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Nevada, and Oklahoma. Those states are going to be voting in November on Marcy's Law on the ballot to put it into their constitutions, and that's so exciting. So what those people should do is just spread the word to the voters um, through social media, through every conversation you have. Get, um, you know, go to marcyslaw.us, contact your state teams, and get uh, buttons, get signs, yard signs, um, you know, get promotional you know, links that you can send out to people. But just tell the voters in those states, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Nevada, Oklahoma, to vote and, and to spread that word wherever you want to. Now, in the states where we have teams that have yet to get it on the ballot, Idaho, Iowa, Maine, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, those states – you can actually get involved with lobbying the state legislators. Or um, in most cases, the uh, petition states, we, we did most of those pretty early on. There, um, it's, it's, if it's a direct-to-ballot state like California where you can just get, gather enough signatures and it goes on the ballot, um, we tried to do some of those states first. I believe, I'm not positive if I got this 100% right, but Idaho, Iowa, Maine, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, those states that we're currently working in, I believe they're all going through the legislature to get into the Constitution, to get on the ballot. So I believe in that case, those states, you would want to be talking to your state legislatures and talking to your state senators and your state representatives and getting them to support it and going to meet with them and bringing victims to them to explain the importance of having the system work and work well for everybody. Um, and they and then in the states, personal stories, right? They, in, yes, in personal stories. So you can go to your web, the website and you can have brochures and buttons and say, here, this is what this is and you need to, you need to vote for this, right? Right, and the beauty of the Marcy's Law effort, which has um, been funded by the Nicholas family, and I'll talk a little bit about this, um, mm -hmm. tell Marcy's story, um, that, is that they are all about empowering the local victims. That's what they are. That's what they're doing. They are going from state to state, and if there is a victim whose rights have been, been violated um, in that state, they are there to empower their voices, and they will do that. And if you make, them, make yourself as a victim known uh, and you are willing to share your story, um, uh, your voice will be empowered and amplified in your state, and you will be allowed and supported to to have tremendous influence uh, to whatever degree that you are willing to do it. Now, there's um, I can give you also the list of states that have zero constitutional rights for crime victims. Okay, these are states that have nothing. They have there's like fifteen of them, right? I've got, I'm, let me count, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. I've got 16. So okay. Hawaii, Montana, I'm starting from the west and going east. Hawaii, Montana, Wyoming, Minnesota, Iowa, Arkansas, Kentucky, Georgia, but Kentucky is in Georgia are on the ballot for the fall. West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Delaware, New York, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Those states have no victim's rights constitutional amendments at all. 
I can't and believe that. And those would be states that we want to build a Marcy's Law team, and we are doing that in a couple of those states. So, again, going to the marcyslaw.us website, you would get in touch with us and let us know that you're interested in bringing those level of rights to your state. And we are building, a, we have national organizers. We have people that are excited to take your phone call and to start the longer-term effort to build uh, the effort in your state. That's wonderful. We're we're all about empowerment here, so we're giving you the tools, all you listeners. And I do want you to tell the backstory about Marcy, but I have one other question. I'm wondering, we have a, a sort of an initiative in our Inside One Network radio show. It's called the Transparency Project, and um, one of our colleagues has taken the charge to try to pass legislation for those people who have um, long, long ago cold cases and they're, you know, they're trying to say that they're, they're inactive cases and they can't get information. Could this also be an overlap whereby if, if these, if these um, families who have had long ago cold cases and they're not getting anywhere, could they also use the enforceability of Marcy's Law as a tool to say, hey, I'm not getting my afforded my rights here. Could the, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and do a different law to say, you know, you're you're not you're not um, helping us, could they use that as a tool? You know, I, I'm not an attorney, so I can't 100% answer that question. But I can tell you that I might, you know, I know that most victims' rights apply to cases as you are intersecting with the criminal justice system. And so let's assume at least the right to be informed would be relevant to a cold case. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly not the right to be heard or present in the courtroom because there's not a court case going on. But if there is an investigation that has kind of gone dormant and the family hasn't heard uh, the victim and or the victim's family in case of murder, haven't heard anything from law enforcement, they have a, yes, under Marcy's Law, I believe they would have a right to say what is going on with this case and what are you doing. Okay. Well, I'm going to share this podcast with them too because why try to reinvent the wheel if there's some pre-existing things that they can use as a tool. Just a thought, you know? <laughs> what, you yeah, know, I mean, I would, I would love to. We have a national legal uh, consultant team and that includes some of the most impressive legal names in the country, like uh, retired federal judge Paul Cassell, who's a law professor, and, and people like that, uh, Steve Twist and, and Professor Doug Belouf and Meg Garvin, who runs the National Crime Victims Law Institute, amazing voices of legal expertise who advise us. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure that we can get an answer for exactly how, um, uh, you know, a certain kinds of victims' rights protections would be of value to cold case. Uh, well, cold that cases. would be great. Maybe we can connect your people with our people, right, Delilah? Does that sound good? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I think it's important that, you know, just the simple fact is you're just trying to level the playing field here. That's it's very just true. as simple as that. And victims have been, in my opinion, tortured in, by the justice system as, as much as they've been tortured through going through the crime itself. And that has to stop. Absolutely. They shouldn't be, it, the crime victim has been through enough. They have, it shouldn't be made worse by a negative intersection with the criminal justice system. Yeah. And it's true. And uh, most people, I mean, luckily we have the endurance 
to, to try to do some of these things for people that cannot. And it comes down to even our own family members. My 85-year-old mom was not did not have the strength to go through the parole hearing and try to navigate all these different things. So we have to be the voice for for many. And, you know, we're all getting old and, you know, we don't know how long our endurance will last. So we have to bring other people to the fore. It's very important there. But we have about four minutes, five minutes or so. And I just wanted to, to say, you know, how this all started and the compelling story of what uh, Marceline Nichols' family went through, it all, you know, in, in encountering the offender in this grocery store. Can you tell, yeah. can you share about that, Jennifer? Sure. And so this is how Marcy's Law, the movement, got its name. And, you know, just knowing that, of course, Marcy's Law now means victims' rights. That's what it means. Um, and it's a it's a big movement across the country that is just completely inspirational. The most amazing people from all sides of the fence that are working together on this. Um, but Marcy Nicholas was a, a young a young woman in California from a, a very nice family who was uh, going to UC Santa Barbara, and she had a boyfriend, but he was abusive, so she broke up with him. And one night he called her up and said, if you don't come over here, I'm going to kill myself, and so you better get over here or I'm going to shoot myself. And so foolishly, of course, she went over there to try to prevent what she thought was a suicide attempt. And instead he greeted her with a shotgun, and he shotgunned her in the face and killed her. And it was just devastating. She was this amazing young woman, full of life and promise and a great future. And um, she was murdered by this abusive uh, ex-boyfriend. So what happened then, of course, the devastated family, she had an older brother, Henry, who is, um, who is her best friend in the whole world, and um, their wonderful mom, um, uh, Marcella Leach, and, um, and, and her husband, and they were devastated by this absolutely horrific murder, of course. Um, they bury their daughter. Uh, the offender is arrested, of course. And they are visiting her grave, you know, within a week of her murder, they still literally have the dirt of the grave on their hands. And they stop back in a grocery store on their way home because they have family over during this horrific time. And uh, they stop in the grocery store to pick up some food. And in the grocery store, days after the murder, released on bail with no notice to the victim's family, is the murderer. He confronts uh, Henry Nicholas and uh, Marcella Leach's mother, Marcy's mother, in the grocery store, confronts them. He had already made threats against their family before anyway. Um, Marcy's mother was so scared that she actually had a heart attack the next day. Just thank God she survived um, because she went on to become a great victim's rights activist. But they called the California law enforcement officials and said, how come this guy can be released on bail with no notice to the victim's family? And they're told by the law enforcement people that, hey, we're under no, no, no um, requirement under California law to notify the victim's family of the release of the accused on bail. So that's when the Nicholas family said, then we're going to do something about this. And that's when the Marcy's Law Movement was born, committed to the idea that victims have a right to be not re-victimized by the criminal justice system. And so that's the, that was the birth of Marcy's Law. And um, luckily, uh, fortunately, um, Marcy's older brother, Dr. Henry Nicholas, who is a very great man, um, uh, is a Ph.D. in electrical engineering, and he is already right. extremely accomplished. He was the f- co-founder of a great company called Broadcom Communications, 
of which he is uh, retired from active participation, but he's still a majority owner of. And Broadcom invented a minor thing called Bluetooth and Wi-Fi technologies, which you, (laughs) of course, use every single day. And so Mm -hmm. being is that Bluetooth and Wi-Fi technologies that Dr. Henry Nicholas um, invented um, is so vital to the world. Um, He has money to spend, thank God, and he is devoting his life's work to this cause. This is how he is honoring his beautiful murdered sister, Marcy, who is his best friend in the world. He is going to use his fortune, and he says, I want to be broke by the time I die. I want to get this done. And so he is going into states supporting local efforts. He never, Marcy's Law does not go into a state and impose itself. It goes, uh, it goes into states to support the work already being done by the amazing victim advocates and victims all over this country to bring themselves to a co-equal level, uh, constitutionally enforceable rights uh, with the offenders. And Marcy's Law is there to support and help all of those that are working for many years in our in all of our cases uh, for many years uh, to make that happen. So we're very grateful to the Nicholas family, to Dr. Henry Nicholas, for his commitment to honor his sister in this way. And just everyone should feel really good about the fact that his uh, Dr. Nicholas's main agenda is to empower the local victims' voices. That is what he is all about. Is Justice for Homicide Victims Inc. the nonprofit? Is that still going? Uh, I, I believe that's uh, one of the people in California that, that started that. Um, am I right that that's the um, – mm-hmm. it's, it's not the same organization, but I think that, you know, there may be the same participants, people that like – that both work in Marcy's right. Law. Because we're trying to connect grassroots nonprofit in, a, in another uh, resources for murder victims, I wanted to ask. Well, totally inspiring very info-packed hour. Unfortunately, Bill and Jennifer, this hour has escaped us all too soon, but please, please, you have an open invitation to come back and and share more because it's always um, great to have updates like this, and we're going to share this and promote this, and I'm going to make sure that those other states that are on the ballot know about this and this podcast. So good show. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's keep in touch. And uh, Delilah, any parting words? I think you pretty well covered it. Thank you both to Bill and yeah. Jennifer for another another very informative podcast. We we appreciate you appearing with us. Thank, well, you, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. It's it's great. So we'll we'll talk again soon. So we will uh, close out this hour for today. And everyone, please be safe. Have a wonderful weekend and. Um, be sure to tune in next week for our next edition of Shattered Lives Radio. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Bill and Jennifer. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having us. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.